0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pair of scientists who are also runners talk about their research on the runner's high.
1: It might be easier to experience it when you're younger and fitter and certainly well trained.
0: A nurse tells about the multiple volunteer trips she's taken to Guatemala.
2: I have a couple that I've worked with for years now who are making a change in those people's lives. They're building houses for them installing kitchens and it's just amazing how they live and yet they're so incredibly happy.
0: And we'll hear about an opioid treatment program that helps people recover from illness and addiction.
3: We have heard from the participants in the program that they're so thankful and that they wouldn't have made it if they didn't participate in the program.
0: All that and a selection from The Healing Muse right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. Your chance to explore science, health and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host Amber Smith. Today we'll explore Guatemala with an upstate nurse who has volunteered on multiple medical trips to that country. Then we'll learn about an addiction treatment program that's a partnership between Upstate University Hospital and the centers at St. Camillus. But first, We'll talk about the runner's high with a pair of researchers who are also runners. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you're a runner or have friends who are runners, you've probably heard about a feeling of euphoria known as a runner's high. Today I'm going to talk about this with two research partners one who is in the HealthLink on Air studio, and one by telephone. Dr. Frank Middleton is with me in the studio. He's an associate professor at Upstate with multiple appointments in neuroscience and physiology, biochemistry and molecular biology, pediatrics and psychology, and behavioral sciences. And then we have Dr. Steve Hicks, who's an Upstate graduate, who's now a pediatrician at Penn State College of Medicine. Thank you both for agreeing to chat about this.
1: Well, thank you, Amber. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, both of you are runners. Uh, have either of you experienced the runner's high?
1: Yeah, I, I
4: believe that I have on multiple occasions, although um, probably on some of those occasions, I didn't realize that I was experiencing it until later.
0: Huh, okay. So it is a real thing. It's a real phenomenon.
4: I believe so. And I think if you ask most, uh, most runners who do long distances, they would agree.
0: Now is it is it just runners or are there other endurance athletes that might experience something similar?
4: I think that it's uh, believed to occur with any form of endurance exercise, although perhaps certain activities may predispose you to it more than others. There's certainly studies out there exploring a um, exercise induced tie from long distance cycling.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So one of the things I would add to that is uh, the idea that it is a a runner's high is a little bit of a simplification. So there are some people who would experience a little bit of euphoria that they would easily recognize as a runner's high. But there's other components to it. Sometimes it's just uh, a feeling like you're in the zone and you lose a sense of time or a feeling like your, your mood is is elevating a little bit and things just don't bother you as much. And so these are also things that might fall under the umbrella term of a runner's high. And if you consider all of those things together, yes, I've also experienced those on occasion, but I have to admit as you get older, they seem to be a little less frequent and you look forward to them if if those moments do happen. Uh, I think because you have other aches and pains that are creeping up. And um, it might be easier to experience it when you're younger and fitter and certainly well-trained. And I have heard, as Steve indicated, certainly athletes in other sports like endurance swimming also report to the sensation of the equivalent of swimmer's high or something like that. And uh, as Steve mentioned, cyclists. So I think any time you're engaged in a repetitive type of activity that is aerobic and involves a, at least modern intensity, you might be able to trigger this broadly defined term of a exercise-induced high.
0: Because you hear about runners who just, they feel better after they've gone for a run. But is that a high, necessarily, or it's parts of it, maybe?
1: Well, Steve, you actually assessed... In this particular study, the post-run sensations, maybe you could comment on that.
4: Yeah, I, I think we tried to standardize the way that we identified a runner's high in this study. And we did that by basically dividing the sensations, the good sensations you get from endurance exercise into four categories. So The first is anxiolysis, so sort of a, a relief of... Some anxiety. A second category would be analgesia, feeling um, lost sensations from pain that you a lot of people associate with running. A third would be sedation, so just this sort of relaxed kind of in-the-zone uh, experience where uh, you almost I want to call it sleepy, but you certainly just you feel relaxed. And then the fourth would be euphoria, um, so just kind of like that high feeling um, that you get where you're on top of the world, you feel invincible. And and then we tried to kind of look for ways to measure those four experiences either through um, a report of symptoms from the runners in our study or physiologic measures.
0: Now, and I want to say, I mean, this is a study that was published in the journal Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise. Um, and you looked at collegiate runners. These are athletes that have been running for all through high school and before, right?
4: Yeah. So they're they're pretty tight age range uh, between 19 and 21 years old. Most of them had been running for eight years or so. Um, they were running on average somewhere between 40 and 70 miles a week. And these are the kind of runners that could go out and run a fifteen to eighteen minute five k. So they are they're not what we'd call elite athletes, but they're certainly um, faster than and a little more dedicated than maybe your average uh, run of the mill runner.
0: Okay. And uh, what what did you find? How did you decide to come up with a measurement for these four things that you were going to measure?
4: First, we looked to see if anybody who's ever studied a runner's high before had, had done this um, so we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. But unfortunately, uh, in our searches of the medical literature, we could not find a single study where somebody had tried to standardize identification of a runner's high. It was really surprising to me that many of the studies previously done to figure out what molecules in your body cause a runner's high had simply taken um adult male runners, usually, and had them run for an hour and then just look to see what changed, regardless of what their run experience was like. Um, oh. or, or conversely, they had taken a set of mice and had them run on a treadmill and then put them in this contraption called an elevated plus maze to see if they come out in the daylight. And if they did that, they, the researchers sort of assumed that they weren't as anxious and they had probably achieved a runner's high. So, um, sort of surprising to me, at least, the way in which runner's highs have been characterized in previous studies.
0: Did you find, were there previous studies that that explain what causes it and what's happening in the body?
4: Yes. And most of those studies uh, take an approach where they start off with a very identified hypothesis. Uh, For instance, endorphins cause a runner's high. And then they seek to measure um, just endorphin molecules in their mouse model or their adult male runners. Um, and if it's an animal model, perhaps they had gone back and in very, sometimes very elegant ways um, manipulated the system that uh, releases endorphins in the body. Um, but very few in fact, no studies that we could find had taken the agnostic approach that Frank and I like to use in, in much of our research, where we sort of we entered this without any preconceived ideas. We were going to just look at all of the transcripts in the body that changed with a runner's high and let the data sort of lead us down the pathway of what's causing a runner's high in these athletes. So we looked predominantly at pathways that had been identified in in previous studies, but we looked at multiple pathways, so the ones we were most interested in were um, opioid signaling, which is essentially endorphins, endocannabinoid signaling, that's like your body's endogenous marijuana pathway, and uh, GABA signaling, where the three that sort of emerged in our study as being tied to a runner's high sensation.
0: I don't understand what any of that means though, is that, does that all have to do with endorphins or, or not?
4: So so opioids are like endorphins. So, um, basically opioids, uh, sort of like a term that often used to describe medicines that we put in our body to give us euphoria, but your body makes them too. So that's, that's endorphins and they are in our study, associated with the runner's high, but they're not the only molecules, or are the only pathways. So we also saw changes in endocannabinoids, but the, the different signaling pathway um, that can give you a high sensation.
1: So I would add that if you consider where these pathways are in the body and in the nervous system, uh, we know that they play a, an integral role in regulating the sensations both of pain and of the appreciation of time perception, for example. Um, Opioids, the endogenous opioids, are present in the level of the spinal cord. And if you have a painful stimulus, a muscle cramp, or something like that, the opioid system is capable of actually shutting off those signals and preventing the sensation of pain from reaching the brain. You also have a backup system that's actually in the central nervous system itself at the level of the cerebral cortex where the opioids can act again and they can produce a essentially the sensation that the pain doesn't bother you at all. Even though you might be able to report some discomfort, it's not going to bother you in the least. You'd know the sensation was there but you're totally fine with it. So these central areas are the same areas that people have shown in brain imaging studies that are activated when somebody is engaged in what we call mental stress and mental stress associated analgesia is a real phenomenon so these central sites some of these in an area of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex are enriched for opioid signaling and if you can activate those areas then you might not care as much about the pain that you would be experiencing or the discomfort that you would be experiencing. The endocannabinoid system, mm-hmm. that is something that's present in the cerebellum at very high levels, and the cerebellum's involved in time perception. And so those two components of the runner's high, the appreciation of time, your sense of time, and disregarding it, sort of losing track, being in the zone, and then the appreciation of pain are going to be affected if you're touching on the endocannabinoid in the and the endogenous opioid system
0: so this system you've described is this does every human have this system or do elite athletes have a, a better system a more fine-tuned system
1: that's a great question I don't think we have the answer to that certainly everybody has these systems some people are more sensitive than others uh, their tone Their built-in level of signaling in these systems differs the same way that people have a different predisposition for drugs of abuse that actually play off the same systems, the opioid system and the cannabinoid system. So if people differ in their predilection for drug abuse, I think we can safely say they might differ in their predilection for experiencing runner's high.
0: So my next question is... um if everyone maybe has the potential perhaps to have a runner's high, what can we
1: do to make sure we get one? I'll turn that question back to the doctor.
4: So we didn't really set out to sort of determine the factors that lead to a runner's high or make a runner's high more likely to occur. Um, so, But we can do a secondary analysis of our data where we compare differences uh, between the runners in the study who achieved a runner's high and the runners who didn't. Uh, for the most part, those two groups were very similar. So females weren't more or less likely to have a runner's high. Um, their The participants' body mass uh, or weight wasn't more or less likely to be related to a runner's high. Their diet didn't seem to have much effect on it, but the, the one factor that was... Um, Almost significantly different between the two groups was the times that the time that since they last ate before their run. So on average, the group that had a runner's high had eaten about one and a half hours before their long run, and the group that didn't had eaten on average about four and a half hours before their long run. Meaning that perhaps if you have a nice uh, fresh glucose load in your bloodstream from a recent meal, uh, you might be more likely to achieve that elusive runner's high.
1: So it might be worth trying, at least. Absolutely. And and one thing to also point out is the molecules that we're measuring, um, microRNAs, which regulate the expression of mRNAs, um, there's even been some interest in potentially seeing if if something of, of this nature would be appropriate um, for pre-workout. Um, consumption. MicroRNAs that you would intake in the form of particular plants or foods uh, might be able to steer you toward the higher probability of experiencing uh, a runner's high. But that is uh, exploration that we have yet to open up.
0: Well, I want to thank you both for sharing this study. It got a lot of publicity when it came out recently. Um, Runner's World, it's all over. I think if you just Google uh, Steve Hicks and Frank Middleton and Runner's High, there's all sorts of things that will come up. So I appreciate you taking the time. My guests have been Dr. Frank Middleton, an associate professor at Upstate, and Dr. Steve Hicks, a pediatrician and researcher at Penn State College of Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, why nurse Susan Thomas is embarking on her eighth medical volunteer trip to Guatemala. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The healthcare industry attracts many professional caregivers who go above and beyond their jobs and give back to their fellow man. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio today is upstate nurse Susan Thomas. She's been a doula for 35 years and then she became a nurse and today she works in labor and delivery at Upstate's Community Campus. And she's made multiple volunteer trips to Guatemala that she's going to tell us about. Welcome. Thank and you. thanks for being here. Thank you. Well, I, I want to ask about how you got started volunteering in Guatemala. But first, um, can you tell me why you went into nursing?
2: So after the birth of my daughter, Joy, my second my second child, um, I wasn't really pleased with the experience that I received in the hospital. And as I lay there in the hospital bed, I thought, you know, I wonder if someday I could be a nurse and, and do this job. Um, I kind of put that on hold after I had joy and um, went on to have two more boys. But um, as my fourth son, or as my fourth child got into, um, started to go towards preschool, I realized what am I gonna do with myself after all of these kids get in school? So I decided at that point to go to nursing school full time and uh, become a nurse. It was then that, I just went into a regular GYN oncology floor because that's what was open, and I felt like I needed the med surge experience at that point.
0: Now, some people might not know what a doula is. You were a doula first, right? I was a doula. After Joy
2: was born, uh, I realized just how important the labor and delivery process is emotionally, physically, even spiritually, and realized that maybe I could make a difference in some woman's life who needed that support, who didn't have it, whether they were in a crisis pregnancy, um, a pregnancy that was uh, not expected or extremely stressful because of medical problems or um, physical problems, emotional problems. And so put my name out there at that point as somebody who would support you through labor and delivery process and um, also pre birth and post birth for breastfeeding and other issues. And uh, got to know quite a few women at that point Um, was not a paid position, which was fine with me. It was really more about how do you help women through this life changing event.
0: Well, it sounds like you're drawn to helping people, which makes sense to to go into nursing, but is that how you got involved in um, volunteer work?
2: I did. I got involved through church at the time. They uh, were going to Guatemala in February every year and had been for years, and so I volunteered one year and went along, and at that point, we built a few houses for uh, a couple of people in the community that were identified as needing that, as well as uh, did a shoe distribution and uh, did like a little vacation Bible school time with some of the kids in the neighborhood.
0: Now, um, Guatemala is a Spanish-speaking country. Do you speak Spanish? No, I don't. don't. I wish I did. <laughs> Have you picked up some I'm along the way? I'm <laughs> trying to do the Duolingo thing and
2: the uh, the other little hints
0: Well, let's talk about the trips themselves, because as you um, became a nurse, and and now you're doing more medical sort of missions, right? Right. Um, Do you always go to the same area of Guatemala? So now since
2: uh, February of 2017, I have gone back to a place called Clinica Izal, which is a surgical center, medical center uh, in Montalano, Guatemala, and... um, I do go back there to the same place. They have three operating rooms that we run from Sunday afternoon to Thursday. and so it's it is typically the same place, yes.
0: Is uh, the other people that are there working with you are they always the same people? No, or they're always different people. They're always different.
2: Yes. Um, there are some repeaters like I am, but um, yes, they're all most the majority of them are new people.
0: Now um, you you said operating rooms. So what sorts of surgeries do you offer?
2: So in the three operating rooms, we divide them between GYN, a general surgery, uh, either, and then a plastics room. Often uh, we do many cleft palates, cleft lips, hernia surgeries for both men, women, and children. And um, and then GYN surgeries for those women who have had a lot of babies and have had either some kind of trauma or um, bladder issues like that.
0: Okay. And so there's
2: surgeons that are there from other parts of the world? There's surgeons from all over the United States.
0: Now, do you have to bring your own medical supplies? We do. We bring our own
2: supplies from here. Uh, the medical director lives in Searcy, Ar- Arkansas, and he... Makes out a list and gathers them up, and you know is purchased through the company.
0: So these are uh, long days for you. Then Sunday through Thursday.
2: Yeah, they start usually around seven, seven thirty, and we end in the evening. The first time we went, um, we had an extremely long case um, of a six-year-old little boy with a kidney issue, and we thought we could get him um, get his surgery done on a Sunday afternoon, and it went almost till midnight. Wow. And um, since then, I've the um, couple times that I've gone back. Now I've seen him again because he's needed further follow up, and it's just amazing to see the difference in how he's doing.
0: Wow. Well, tell. Uh, let's get a little practical here. What does it cost to do a trip like this? Because you're volunteering, but you're also having to pay to get there, right? Right,
2: right. So the air tickets are usually between five hundred and sometimes $1,600. I just looked the other night for June and March, and they're up around $1,100. So it's the airfare is that cost. And then we also um, give Health Challenge, which is the name of the company, that the organization that I work with, $650 for supplies, your room and board, your meals, all of those things.
0: So, room and board, do you stay in the facility where you do the work?
2: We do. We stay right inside the uh, facility. It has about, I think, maybe 15 dorm rooms. And there is, um, you know, running water, showers, toilets that flush, the whole thing. uh, A couple of twin beds in each room. And it's very comfortable. It's not like what you think of going there
0: and being in a hut or something, but it's very comfortable. It is comfortable. Now, you go all different times of year. I was going to ask about the climate. It's sort of opposite of Syracuse? So it's
2: typically in the 70s, 80s, um, very humid, and it stays that way pretty much year-round. Oh, neat. There's lots of rainy seasons, you know, in September. We ended up with an earthquake when we were there one year, and then the volcano erupted in June, so that was... Were you there for the Yes, vol- I was oh, wow. there when the um the volcano erupted in June and it it totally changed our plans for travel back to the city cuz the roads were gone. Wow.
0: Yeah. Wow. Were you involved? How close were how close were you to the volcano? I think it was
2: about 35 minutes. Wow. That's so what they said. Close. Yeah
0: let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate nurse Susan Thomas about the volunteer trips that she takes to Guatemala. So, and I know you have another one coming up. It's February. February Um, 8th. So is it hard uh, to leave, once you get there to Guatemala and you're settled in, is it hard to leave there and return home to the comforts of central New York? It is. You feel,
2: I feel, a little guilty for doing that because when you see the people that are there who have very little um, they come with the clothes on their back you know they may have a change of clothes the places that we drive through to get to the clinic are extremely poor they live in uh, houses that are built out of tin or bamboo or uh, corn stalks um, and for you to leave and come back to a country that is so, I don't, I don't know, have even know so the much. word, we have so right. much, you know, when it's funny, when people say, what do you need? Or what, what do they need? They, they don't realize what they need, you know, no. compared to what we have. They, and I think they feel like we're doing just fine. And they are, they really are. So it, it really has changed my whole mindset of what do you really need?
0: So a much simpler existence, but like when you describe the houses, it sounds like poverty. It is poverty, absolute poverty. You know, the kids
2: are, um, they have no yards. They're they're running around in um, muddy areas around the outside of a house that's built either out of um, tin or plastic sheeting, black plastic sheeting. And um, I have a couple that I've worked with for years now who are making a change in those people's lives. They're building houses for them, installing kitchens, and it's just amazing how they live, and yet they're so incredibly happy, the people are.
0: Do they have um, beds to sleep on, beds that we would recognize as beds? No. No. No.
2: They have mats. They have things that they lay on the floor. They sometimes will find, um, you know, wood that they can create a frame out of and then lay blankets on, yes. What about electronics,
0: television, so, tipi- cell phones?
2: They yeah. do, you know, it's funny to see them because they do have cell phones, some of them. And yet when you go by their houses, you you can see that it's um, dark, there's no lighting. Uh, the couple that I work with are now um, installing solar lighting, which is awesome because mm. they get so much sunshine, it, you know, it works out really well for them. Um, but as far as the comforts of what we would consider home, you know, they don't have living rooms. They have no, they have a really a one room house that they all share, all of the kids and the parents alike. And they cook outside on either, um, an area where they've built up stones around and created a fire.
0: Wow. Well, do you feel like you as an individual are making an impact? I do.
2: I... We have been there, I have been there enough that I uh, have met some of the same people over and over again, um, people who come back for um, reconstruction on plastic surgeries, or um, men who had a hernia repair and now are coming back to help out the next guy go through it. Oh. So it's fun to see that uh, the the women whose lives have changed because of um, the issue they're having with either bladder or um, from having too many babies, you know, that now they're able to function day, day to day.
0: Neat. Well, do you think these um, volunteer trips help you be a better nurse? Do you, Do you learn things there that you wouldn't have the opportunity to learn here?
2: I think that uh, I've learned a couple of things about anesthesia, doing some things that we did in in Guatemala that we haven't done here, and um, so yeah, I I, I also think that it's a different mindset there, you know, the, the care is much more personal. Um, you're allowed to pray with your patients before they go into surgery. And I'm not saying we can't do that here, but it's typically, um, it's much more open there to be, to be real with your patients and to be on their, um, spiritual level as well, because they're a very spiritual country. They're very, mostly Catholic. Um, and here you, you worry sometimes about offending people. Sure. When you say, you know, if if I'm a nurse in the hospital and I, and I say, can I pray for you, how would that, sometimes it wouldn't come
0: across as mm-hmm. as, as well as so. Uh, well, finally, what advice would you give to someone who would like to do what you're doing and, you know, volunteer and help?
2: Well, I would be happy to connect them with um, health talents or with Rick and Carrie Sills who, um, if they don't have any medical training, They certainly can come, whether or not they're a nurse, doctor, anesthesia, we're always looking for uh, caregivers to come and hold a hand or help somebody to the bathroom. So it's Health Talents International or Carrie and Rita Sills, their blog is, um, they're missionaries that have been there for six years and have really given up the comforts of home to do what they do.
0: Well, we'll um, send a link on the healthlinkonair.org website. We'll put a link to their website Perfect. so that thank listeners you. can do that. So, thank you so much. This has been very interesting. I appreciate you coming in and sharing this. My guest has been Upstate Nurse Susan Thomas. This has been Amber Smith for Upstate's Healthlink On Air. Coming up next, a new addiction treatment program. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A new treatment program designed to help people recover from illness and addiction is underway, and it's a partnership between Upstate University Hospital and the centers at St. Camillus. Here to explain how it works are Nurse Kelly Moosey, Assistant Director of Transitional Care at Upstate, and Nurse Suzanne Wheeler, Case Manager in the Department of Transitional Care. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you now if I understand correctly this is a program that began with a grant um, 2.1 million dollar grant from CNY Care Collaborative. Can you tell us how that came about? Kelly
3: Sure so we had identified in at upstate um, Medical University that we had a large population of patients who were coming in for infections endocarditis overdose um, who had chronic, chronic disease, and also an opioid addiction. So many of those patients needed to be on six to eight weeks of long-term antibiotics and there was really no way to discharge them. Many of them have um, a central line, or a pick line is what it's called, that's inserted directly into their vein. And there's concerns about letting people with addiction disorders out into communities with those pick lines. So what would happen is they would come in and they would remain at upstate, either at our um, downtown campus or our community campus for about six to eight weeks. So once they started feeling better, maybe like around week two or three, they would be bored. There's really nothing for them to do. A lot of them were young. And so we would have these people that were just sitting here for three weeks. In addition to being bored, they weren't really getting any addiction treatment. So I reached out to somebody that I knew at St. Camillus. And um, throughout the possibility that maybe St. Camillus Upstate Hospital and then some of our community support agencies, um, ACR Health and CMY Services that maybe the four of us could come up with some kind of program that would allow them to get their initial treatment here and then be transferred over to St. Camillus where they would subsequently get addiction treatment and complete their course of care. So it's it, it helps the people that have an addiction
0: uh, that they're working on. And it frees up hospital beds. Yeah. Sort of a win-win.
3: Yeah, that's been a real advantage for us. Um, So far, our hospital itself has saved about 605 bed days, which has allowed us to admit an additional 104 people and saved us about $700,000, give or take. In addition, we've had 40 people since April complete the program, and about 98% of them have remained in um, some kind of addiction treatment once they left St. Camilla, so
0: So how big of a problem is because this is for opioid addiction only, correct?
5: We've expanded the program um, f- and looked at patients with all substance use disorders. So um, the other big population that we have are people with alcohol abuse. Um, we've also looked at people with cocaine addictions. Um, and some other substance abuse disorders. We have a lot of polysubstance abuse patients where they'll use just about any psychopharmacological drug
0: out there. So it's, a, it's still a continuing need. There's a lot of patients that, that would qualify for this. It's Correct. Okay.
5: On any given day, we probably have between 30 and 40 patients in the hospital that have identified substance use disorders. And then how many people uh, can you fit into the program? Right now we have five beds allotted at St. Camillus. Due to their patient load, these patients require more intensive nursing care and um, community partners, uh, ACR Health and CNY Services, their staffing for the program limits the number of patients that can be served properly at the facility. But it's always rotating, like some of those five may
0: be discharged and then those beds open up. Correct, and we
5: usually have somebody slated to fill that bed when someone is discharged. Okay, well
0: let's talk about how the program actually works in practice. If you have a patient at Upstate um, University Hospital who you think would qualify for this, what what type of patient would that be?
5: So in order to qualify for the program, they have to have an identified substance use disorder. They have to be willing to participate in the program. So it's voluntary? It is voluntary. We do have some patients that do not wish to seek any substance use treatment. They want to receive their medical care and then be discharged back to the community. They also have to have a skilled nursing need in order for their insurance to cover the cost of the program. So skilled nursing needs would be something like IV antibiotics, therapy needs, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. Um, We also have a patient over there right now um, that has a burn that requires extensive wound care. So
0: once a person um, qualifies, then a bed has to open up.
5: Correct. So once we've identified a person and they look like they're going to meet the criteria to go, we have two community partners that um, work at the program as well. ACR Health does the basically the discharge planning for the patients. Um, They set up all of their treatment needs after discharge. They can help patients with housing. They can help patients with getting social security or getting um, other needs met while they're in the program. Then CNY services provides substance abuse and mental health counseling to the patients while they're there. So both those agencies come to the hospital and screen the patients in the hospital to make sure they're appropriate. They do a really in-depth psychosocial assessment of the patients. Um, and then St. Camillus has to assess the patients to make sure they have enough needs that the insurance is gonna cover their stay um, and that they
3: can meet their needs once they're there neither Suzanne or I um, have a strong background in addiction we're both case managers and nurses for the transitional care department so we really needed the supports of people who had uh, specialty in addiction so that they really could come in and make sure that we're picking appropriate patients to be in the nursing home population
0: so how long are they at St. Camillus?
3: anywhere from four to six weeks the majority of them on average
0: this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with a couple of nurses from Upstate Nurse Kelly Musey. She's the Assistant Director of Transitional Care, and Nurse Suzanne Wheeler, she's a case manager in the Department of Transitional Care, about a program partnership between Upstate University Hospital and the Centers at St. Camillus. So this is a a voluntary program. Why would someone benefit from participating? I mean, what how do you sell this to someone?
5: For Patients that have substance use disorders, um, this is generally their second or third admission to the hospital with some type of extremely serious condition. Um, I have a gentleman right now in the hospital, this is his third bout of endocarditis, which is a heart infection, directly related to IV drug use. Um, And these patients do die. So, you know, number one, They are looking to get treatment for their medical conditions, Um, and then it's a lot of selling the program based on having supports while they're at St. Camillus and receiving their initial treatment and referrals to longer term programs once they get discharged from St. Camillus. They've completed their medical treatment. but they still need very intensive either inpatient or outpatient substance abuse treatment. So this is kind of a bridge to get them to that long-term program. And then lastly, um, being at St. Camillus is certainly preferable to sitting in the hospital. They have much more freedom at St. Camillus. Um, you know, here in the hospital, they're kind of stuck in their room or they can walk the hallways. Um, At St. Camillus, they have a physical therapy gym that even if the patients aren't receiving therapy, they can use the gym. The uh, peer engagement specialist from ACR Health takes them to their doctor's appointments. If they need a trip to Walmart, they can run them over to Walmart. Um, They've taken them to the social security office. They've taken them to get um, IDs at the DMV because these are patients that may have lost all of their belongings they may be homeless and they need certain things in order to be successful after they leave the hospital so it allows them to get some of these needs met while they're still getting the treatments that they need both medical and psychosocial
0: so this has been ongoing since april 2018 and you said there's about 40 people who've gone through this successfully Um, I wanted to ask both of you, does it feel like this program is having an impact and making a difference in people's
3: lives? I I think so. I mean, we have heard from from the participants in the program that they're so thankful and that they wouldn't have made it you know, they wouldn't have made it if they didn't participate in the program. We have a really, really good um, retention rate for people remaining in addiction treatment. So I think that the um, people from CMY Services and ACR Health are have offices right at St. Camilla's. So they're really there with them, you know, five days a week, every day, building relationships with them. So I think that ongoing support and having people by their side for that long of a period of time really you know, really helps people feel supported and taken care of. And to know that when they leave there, they're still going to be connected with those people, I think really helps people remain positive and connected to the program. So what are some of the options for people once they complete the program? Are they still involved with... Yes, um, that's kind of the role that ACR Health uh, plays. So ACR Health, like Suzanne said, will, you know, see them in their clinics if they need to. They'll help them find uh, appropriate housing. It's very it's very difficult if you came from a situation where there was substance abuse to return to that setting. So they help them find alternative housing if need be. They see them on an ongoing basis. They set them up with ongoing counseling, whether it be NA or whether they need individual counseling. So they remain active in their life. And the grant was set up so that they would remain active in their life for a six-month period of time. So when all is set and done, they have six months post-discharge. They have four to six weeks at St. Camilla's. So You know, it's a good period of time that they remain clean, hopefully. And you mentioned NA—that's narcotics. Narcotics anonymous, Anonymous, yeah.
0: And that's sort of um, designed to prevent or prevent
5: relapse. Yeah. It's a community support tool that some patients take advantage of. Um, We also, for our patients that have narcotic addiction, oftentimes we will start them on Suboxone or Subutex prior to discharge from the hospital. um, St. Camillus has a provider that can prescribe that there at the facility. Um, And that's for detoxification? It's to, um, it's an opiate agonist so that it reduces the cravings for the drugs. Um, So, ACR Health can get them set up with a Suboxone provider after discharge. Most of these folks don't have a primary care provider. That's very important. They can get them set up with that. And we've also sent a couple people to inpatient programs. We've been very fortunate. One of our biggest success stories was one of our first patients. And we actually got her into a program via Road to Recovery down in Texas. And, um, you know, it, she was one of those patients that was not expected to live um, and was at St. Camilla's for almost three months due to her infections and the difficulty in treating them. And she's doing amazingly well.
0: So this really sounds like it can be a way to uh, help someone turn their life around. And-
5: Absolutely. Um, we've had one gentleman that relapsed. Um, came back to upstate. We got him right back over to St. Camillus, and he's doing very well because we were able to get him connected with people that cared, that people he knew, and we're able
3: to take a look at what caused the relapse and take steps to prevent that again. We certainly um, don't tout ourselves as an inpatient addiction program because it's, it's really d- different. It's, it's sort of a hybrid. It's giving them some support that they wouldn't get while they're, while they're having their complex medical sure. needs. So if we feel like they need inpatient um, addiction services after they leave St. Camillus, then we'll certainly set them up with that. But it's certainly a better alternative to the four weeks that they were wasting at our hospital and getting no support at all.
0: Well, thank you both so much for coming in and explaining this. My guests have been Nurse Kelly Musi, Assistant Director of Transitional Care at Upstate, and Nurse Suzanne Wheeler, Case Manager in the Department of Transitional Care. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
6: Poetry happens everywhere, as Marley Stewart, assistant editor of Louisiana literature, poet and short story writer, reminds us in his evocative poem, Pastry Cream Reverie. His speaker, a pastry chef, is focused on his craft, yet able to create a lovely meditation for us at the same time. I'm trying to remember what it was, stirring tempered eggs into hot milk and sugar at the shop today, What exactly ran through my mind as the foam cooked off and the cream began to spit? What was it? The cream was turning out well, hot enough to set when I poured in the eggs. Steam crept up my arms, then snuck back into the pot like a request withdrawn and the foam cooked off. The cream thickened and began to spit. But wasn't there something before I emptied the cream into pans to cool? Something there and lost in the pot, like a drop of sweat whisked in. Something that stopped the steam on the crook of my arm while the bell rang over the door. It was good to know the milk was hot enough already, and I wouldn't risk burning it turning up the flame after adding the eggs. Maybe it was that small reassurance, nothing else. How much of life comes down to a steady hand and patience? The second poem is from poet Alf Abu Hajla, from Tahoe, California. He takes a look at adolescence from the vantage point of adulthood and sees what he lacked and what he's tried to provide his own family. Here is Evening Feast. When mom passed out from painkillers, leaving me cold plates of love, sometimes with a note, I'd live off nothing but domestic fantasies for days. Under dripping autumn branches, I watched entire families gather in white linen kitchen windows for their nightly rituals. With hurried hands and still dressed in office clothes, husband and wife silently reconnect over their disappointing son, who stares at a Depeche Mode poster, wishing he was free from curfews and consequences, expectations I would only lie about when I said Mom wants me home by sunset or at least before they turn on the street lights. A rule my daughters know well as they rush back to our house where you stand in the open kitchen among steamed rice and fried fish ready to serve dinner. The overweight dog snorts by the fireplace chasing his own nightmares. Outside in the early winter rain, eyes move unnoticed through the trees. A starved young heart in the dark, feasting on our intimate performance.
0: This has been Upstate's Health Link on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York next week on HealthLink on Air, learn about the organization established to help those dealing with mental illness. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith thanking you for listening.